Good morning, and Merry Christmas. It's one of my favorite times of the year. Um, I know people have different, mixed feelings about Christmas, but uh, I, I love Christmas, and uh, so we're looking forward to uh, celebrating uh, our Christmas Eve services together on the 24th, and uh, thanks for reminding us that uh, we were going to do services on the 26th, but, but Colton said he really just couldn't pass up some Boxing Week deals that he was anticipating, so... For his sake, we said, okay, we'll, we'll wait, wait a week. So we'll, we'll be back uh, on, uh, in, on January 2nd. And on January 9th, we'll be moving to two services. Uh, so I think, uh, I think you're, you're aware of that. Uh, but if you are uh, not serving in currently and you want to plug in deeper at SunWest, we'd encourage you to serve one and attend one. Uh, and if you're interested in helping out in any of our areas at SunWest, just leave your name at the Welcome Center. We'll be in contact with you. Uh, and one of our values at SunWest is sharing what you love. And last week, I shared what I loved, uh, and that was James Taylor's Christmas album. And I gave you guys some homework to go home and listen to it. Did anybody listen to the James Taylor Christmas album? Okay. So a number of, there's way more hands this week than last week. That is fantastic. So Sunday afternoon, I get home. And my phone starts blowing up, and I, I was getting messages such as this. Not going to lie, bro, quite o- o- underwhelmed with the James Taylor Christmas album. Got to side with Kendall on this one. Um, and I got this one who got a text from a friend. Uh, so I don't know who the friend was. They, were, they, they said, LOL, just searched up James Taylor Christmas music, and I do not like it! Exclamation mark. <laughs> So luckily, in, in every group, there's usually someone that can catch the bug, and I also got this, uh, this text from a friend, uh, James Taylor, on vinyl. So I know uh, some of you guys get it, um, and other, others, I, it, it's okay, it's okay. We can, we can agree to disagree on that. Um, but like I said, we have a value of sharing what you love, and, uh, and often what we, we're talking about when, we're, when we say that is Jesus. If we love Jesus, we should be sharing about him. If he's the most important thing in our lives, uh, then we ought to talk about him more. Uh, and I think we live in a kind of a world where maybe we're, we're too afraid to talk about what we love and particularly our faith. And I, I hope that as we've gone through the reunion series that it has given you a way to articulate uh, some pieces of your faith as we look at the gospel in one word, in three words, in 30 words. Uh, our hope is not only to do a deep dive into the gospel so we understand it, that's great, but also so that we can learn to articulate it better. If it is the most important life-changing reality of our lives... We should be able to articulate it and talk about it. Um, and so it's been fun uh, the last 10 weeks sharing what, uh, what we as SunWest Church, what we love, what I love. And we've looked at the gospel in one word, which is Jesus. The gospel in three words, which is Jesus is Lord. And the gospel in 30 words, uh, which, which Kendall, Kendall wrapped up the last phrase in that last week, uh, which is Jesus is God with us. Come to show us God's love, save us from sin, set up God's kingdom, and shut down religion. Those four in the middle are the gifts of the gospel, what God does for us that we can't do for ourselves, uh, for the purpose of what? So that we can share in God's life. And the, the, what the gospel does is it responds to our core human needs. And we chat with this uh, quite a bit in the first few weeks that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, although it's not perfect, it seeks to articulate uh, what every human being actually has as their core needs. And the gospel, when wholly understood... Uh, is not just about saving our souls to heaven one day, although it does include that. It's actually a holistic good news gospel that is good news for everybody uh, that meets us at our deepest human needs. So this morning, we're going to wrap it all up 
uh, and summarize it uh, in one word, and that word is the F word. Uh, so I, I, I doubt you thought you'd be hearing a sermon on the F word uh, the week of Christmas. Uh, and I had a bunch of illustrations for this uh, point, but my wife said they were inappropriate, so I'm just going <laughs> to trust her judgment, uh, not my own, and we're going to move on. Uh, the F word is the word faith. Ah, I'm disappointed. That's, that's not what I was expecting. Uh, so we have to understand faith in the biblical context. We've, we talk a lot about faith at SunWest because it is, the, it is the key to our faith. It's the key to what we believe is to actually have faith. Uh, the biblical word for faith means more than just mentally subscribing or, or understanding or believing something intellectually. It's trusting someone so much that you are willing to follow them. That is the biblical concept of faith. You can't forget the flip side to faith, which is another F word, which is follow. Uh, You cannot have faith without following. To have faith means you have enough trust to follow. Those two go hand in hand. To believe something and not have it impact your life was not a concept that the New Testament writers would have understood at all. You know, now now we live in this very compartmentalized world where we, we think we can believe something and live in a completely different way. Uh, but in Hebrew culture, the Hebrew writers, they understood that if you believe something, you live it. And if you don't live it, that's actually uh, testifying to the fact that you don't believe it. So you can say what you want, uh, but the truth of what we believe is kind of fleshed out in how we live. And so you can imagine uh, if you were lost in the wilderness somewhere and you had no idea where you parked your car and you're trying to find your way back and you had no idea which was northwest, east, south, and you're like, I don't know where to go, and this guy shows up in the woods, and he's, you know, this, this woodsman. He looks like a woodsman. He looks like a lumberjack. Uh, you know, he's got the, uh, he got the mustache and the plaid, and you're like, I can trust that guy. Um, and, uh, and so he comes up to you and says, oh, you, you're looking for a car? I can, I can show you your way back. This is either the best news that you've ever heard, or it's the beginning of a really bad horror flick. Um, and so you have to... Make a decision in that moment where you, whether you trust this person enough to follow them, whether you trust them more than you trust your own intuition. And to say, I trust them, and then you don't trust them enough to follow them back to the car would just be ludicrous. Like That doesn't make any sense. If you trusted them, you would obviously follow them back to the car. To have faith is to follow. You cannot uh, look at it any other way, uh, if we understand in the biblical sense. And so the, the word faith, Colton mentioned this in his week, but the word Faith is the Greek word pistis. Everybody say pistis. It's, it's just a fun word to say. You know, uh, sometimes people like to name their kids after like Greek words. I would encourage you not to name your kid pistis. Uh, there's way better words for that. Uh, but, but the Greek word is pistis. And pistis is actually, uh, when, the, when the English translates the word pistis in our Bible, it can translate it two ways, faith or faithfulness. They're the exact same word. There's no differentiation in the Greek language. The only way to know which one pistis is referring to is in the context. But to have faith or to be faithful, to have faithfulness, is the same concept. They are baked right into each other. And on top of that, uh, and I've, I mention this often here at SunWest, but to, when we say believe, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the good news it's actually the verb of the word faith, pistuo. Everybody say pistuo. 
Not quite as fun as pistis, but it's, it's pretty, pretty good. Uh, and so this word, uh, this, this is a verb for faith. So if you were to translate it literally, it's the word faithing. And so when we start to think of it that way, we, we're starting to grasp the biblical concept of faith. It's not just believe, intellectual belief. Do I understand it? You know, James says even the demons understand God, but that's different than faith. To actually believe in the biblical sense is to trust. Is to trust someone enough to follow them. To be faithful to them is to have faith. I mentioned James, and James says, in the same way faith by itself is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So when we respond to Jesus in faith, we're not talking about just saying a prayer or checking the box of trying to believe the right things. It's a heart shift. It's a shift towards trusting Jesus more than I trust myself or anybody else. To say, I want to go where Jesus is going. I want to base the priorities of my life on the things that were priorities for Jesus. Our life changes when we're reborn and we receive the Spirit, we decide to put our faith or trust in Jesus. But from that point on, we are on a trajectory of ongoing change, of following Jesus, of him being Lord of our life, and we're back to the gospel in three words, that Jesus is Lord. Now this morning I want to kind of do a a dive into John chapter 12, and a little bit of context in John chapter 12. This is nearing the time of Jesus' death. You know, I know we're in Christmas and you're thinking, are you jumping too far ahead? But bear with me here. We're nearing the time of Jesus' death here in John 12, and he's going to Jerusalem to make a grand entrance. Yeah, so it's the time of Passover, so every year um, hundreds of thousands of Jews would travel from all over the place to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, to be close to the temple. And so there's lots of religious tourists, there's people uh, coming and going from everywhere, everyone's going to Jerusalem, people were anticipating that Jesus would make an appearance. And so uh, people had all different thoughts about Jesus, but they had thoughts about Jesus because he was making a name for himself. Uh, his teaching was spreading. His, uh, the words of his miracles and the power that he had was, was spreading. So people were curious about him. Um, his signs and wonders. Many wondered if he was the Messiah. And the Messiah uh, meant king in the, in the understanding of the Hebrew world at that time. They believed that there was a Messiah coming from God, that he was going to be king and that he was going to rule, and that finally it would elevate Jerusalem to the status, or Israel to the status uh, that God had told them uh, that they were going to be God's special people. So Jesus, knowing this, coming to Jerusalem, prepares for his parade, except this parade only had one float. It was Jesus, the center of the parade, and instead of riding on a big, flashy float, he was riding on a donkey, which was a uh, statement in and of itself. You know, it's, it's a different kind of uh, look than coming in on a war horse. You know, if, so if you've got a horse... That kind of says something, right? And you, th- you think about how the stature of horses, how big they are, how strong they look, how, and, and what they sound like. And just to remind you what a horse sounds like, a horse sounds something like this. Oh, yeah. And I so you hear that, and you're like, that's strength. That's, if I was going to be Messiah, I was going to ride in on that thing, right? Um, no, but Jesus actually comes riding in on a donkey, on a donkey, so short that his legs are probably dragging on the ground, and instead of sounding like a horse, it sounds something like this. That doesn't scream like strong Messiah. 
how it looks, how it sounds, feet dragging, he rides in a donkey, and it's creating all this conversation, and this can't be the Messiah. People are confused. And in John chapter 12, verse 19, the Pharisees observe sarcastically, look how the whole world has gone after him. Everybody's infatuated with him. And even though it's hyperbole, there's, there's a truth that John is embedding in, in his gospel that the whole world, whether they know it or not, is waiting in anticipation of this Messiah. And that's what the word Advent means, is to wait. That every human being... No matter if they know God or not, no matter if they're familiar with the gospel or not, whether they know it's truth or not, it, you know, it doesn't matter. It's truth because it's truth, and that means that we have been created to be with God, and we all are in need of a Messiah, of a king. And so the whole world, the Pharisees saying sarcastically, the whole world has gone after him. They were jealous because of the attention that Jesus was getting from the whole world. But this reminds us of the good news, the gospel is actually for all people. And at SunWest, we have a mission statement that says uh, we exist to guide all people into a lifelong, authentic relationship with Jesus Christ. And the word all didn't find its way in there just by chance. We were very intentional about picking that word because no matter who you are, no matter your story, no matter where you've been, what decisions that you've made, we believe that the good news, the gospel of Jesus is for every single human being no exceptions. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem. The whole world is waiting, whether they know it or not. Uh, and he is the Messiah, whether he looks like it or not. And so in verse 20, the, the story continues. It says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at, at the festival. And so there were some Greeks that went to worship at the temple. Uh, so these were Gentiles, which means non-Jews. They weren't they're Jewish, but they believed in the God of Israel, uh, that he was the true God, and they wanted to participate as much as they were allowed to, because up until this point there was limitations on how much they could participate. And they'd heard some of Jesus' teaching, they'd heard about him, they were intrigued. And so Greeks themselves were starting to show up, not just the Israelites, not just the Jews, but the Greeks, the Gentiles, those who were, who were historically outside of the faith start showing up, being intrigued. And then it says this, they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request, sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. And so they go to Philip with the request. So why does John point out Philip? Why, why do the, the Gentiles, why do they go to Philip? This is a part of the text that we could probably just easily read over. We don't really think much about, but there's a lot going on underneath the surface. They went to Philip because Philip was from Bethsaida in Galilee, which the text tells us. And Bethsaida in Galilee is a region where the cultures of Jewish and Greek have kind of merged. In fact, Philip's name was a Greek name. Uh, he was a Jewish guy with a Greek name. And out of the 12 disciples, there were two names that were Greek names. Do you know which names they were? Philip and Andrew. So why would these Gentiles, these Greeks, not go directly to Jesus, but go to Philip and Andrew? Well, I think the point's probably obvious, but Philip and Andrew were like them. They could relate to them. There was... Uh, there was something that they could touch and understand. Uh, they felt like Philip and Andrew got them, and they weren't sure about Jesus. And so that was like a safe next step. So these two disciples 
grew up in this Hellenized province of Israel. And Hellenized just means, you know, Greek culture. It means taken over by Greek culture and Greek language. They grew up in this Hellenized culture, but yet they were Jesus followers. And, and everybody who was wondering and intrigued and curious thought, well, I could go to Philip and Andrew and they would get me. They would understand me. They would know my story, where, where I'm coming from. People don't have the courage to go right to Jesus, so they looked among the disciples to see who is approachable, who understands them, who could help them, who could relate to them, who has shared the same story as them. And not much has changed 2,000 years later. People need to find an Andrew and a Philip. There might be something in your life that has equipped you to be an Andrew and a Philip for somebody else. Some people are more approachable to other people than others, and this is just part of human nature. And my guess is for those... uh, here and online that have put their faith in Jesus, there was an Andrew and a Philip in your story where you had questions about God. You, had, you were intrigued, but you didn't quite know. And so you came across an Andrew and a Philip and you thought, they are a good next step. And I just want to encourage you that there's nothing in your life, whether it's things that you've chosen or things that have chosen, been chosen for you that have impacted you, there's nothing in your life that Jesus cannot use you cannot use to help you be an Andrew and a Philip to somebody else. In fact, some of the things that we want to hide in, I know we're talking about Greek language and culture here, but it could be, um, it could be anything from your past. Often we think we want to erase our past, we want to erase the hard edges of our own stories, but God doesn't want that for you because part of your story that you want to erase, he wants to redeem And he wants to use you to be an Andrew and a Philip for somebody else. He's more powerful than than that, just to erase our stories. He doesn't want to erase them. He wants to redeem them. He wants to rewrite your story. And he wants you to be an Andrew and a Philip. Even if you don't feel like you're, you're good enough, you're not qualified enough, you get to be the bearer of the good news of the gospel that we've been talking about to show other people what God is like. And they might be intrigued by God. They might have questions about God. You know, we live in a culture where people are suspect about the church, but people are very curious about God and Jesus. And you think, maybe they'll just show up at church and they'll find out the good news. That, you know, our world doesn't really work that way. You are actually the bearer of the good news to those around you. Jesus is calling you to be Andrews and Phillips. It might be your language. It might be your culture. It might be the highlights of your story. It might be the lowlights of your story. It might be the loss that you've experienced, addiction you've had, abuse that you've gone through. I guarantee you there's somebody else in this world that shares the same story as you that is looking for someone exactly like you to introduce them to Jesus. We've all had Andrews and Phillips. Let's be mindful that God might be calling us to be Andrews and Phillips uh, to those in our lives. And so they came to Andrew, they came to Philip. Uh, and Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. It's a beautiful part of that story. And so Jesus replied to, Andrew, to Philip and Andrew, uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And, and Jesus is responding to them, but there's a whole crowd around. So Jesus is not just talking to them, he's talking to the crowd that's, that's listening. Uh, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This, um, the Greeks asking Jesus has become a trigger to something in the text of John, in the Gospel of John. Every point up until this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus responds with, the hour has not yet come. When people are looking for Jesus to reveal himself, 
He tells him he's the Messiah, shows that he's the Messiah. He, he responds that the hour has not yet come. There's the first miracle story in the, the Gospel of John where Jesus turns water into wine, but even before that happens, the wine runs out of the party, and Jesus' mother Mary comes and says, Jesus, you've got to help us. We're out of wine. And, and Jesus says, Mother, the hour has not yet come. And then she says, We need wine. And Jesus says, Okay, like a good Jewish boy, listen to his mom. <laughs> All right. My mom tells me so, I'm going to do it, even though my hour hasn't come. Uh, but up until this point, the hour has not yet come. And here's the pivotal point in John's gospel where the hour has come. Where the good news is now going to be proclaimed to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, where people are going to know that Jesus is the Messiah. And this moment, don't miss it, comes when Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. And this is the gospel that comes humbly it doesn't come through coercion. It, it, it's the gospel that brings people together. They don't, these, Greek, these Greeks and Jews, they haven't got along historically, but in this moment we see that Jesus is bringing two people groups that historically haven't gotten along back together. One of the markers of our faith, of our followership, is the diversity and unity that Jesus brings. The church is full of people from diverse sides that come together in the same family. It's beautiful. People that love cats and people that love dogs in the same family. Country and hip-hop. Can you, can you believe that we have Oilers and Flames fans that both worship together in this space? It's amazing. And not only that, we have people that love James Taylor and love Michael Buble, and yet they have found common faith together. It's amazing. We have more in common because we have Jesus in common than anything else. If Jesus is the primary thing in our lives, we have more in common than anything else because he's primary. You understand that? We are living in a world right now that has so many different ways to, to slice and cut the division among us. But for those who have faith, for those who have put their trust in Jesus to follow him, is to say that we have more in common than anything else that could divide us. The primary thing is what actually binds us together. The hour has come, Jesus says. This is the moment. And then he says, very truly, I tell you, and literally the Greek, the Greek in the original Greek text, it says, truly, truly, and anytime there's two words together in the original language, it's like texting somebody with, with, uh, in caps. And you're like, why are you yelling at me? You have that when people text in capital letters? This is, this is what it means in the Greek text. Capitalized letters. Truly, truly, I tell you. So this part is important. Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. So Jesus is saying, my death is what makes your life possible. My death is what makes the expansion of the gospel possible. And in the original language, it, it really emphasizes the aloneness. It literally says, unless it, does, unless it dies, it remains a seed alone. That's what the text says. It remains a seed alone. Jesus is saying, when you follow me, and as we also die, we become one seed that will make many seeds. So don't miss this. Faith means to follow. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die, and in my death, there's actually going to be many people that will find life. And if you want to follow me, guess what happens to you? That was a feel-good sermon. Um, we die, 
as well. We die to our own agendas. We die to our own lives. When we put faith into Jesus, we make him primary. Everything else in our lives actually takes a back seat. Jesus is saying that unless that happens, up until that point, it's just about you. And so it's, it's kind of a sad picture, but it's a beautiful picture. When you put a seed in the ground, it's like a, it's like a mini funeral service. You know, the seed is dying. It's going to be no more, but it's actually going to be the beginning of something much more, of many other seeds. Death is the root to life. This is the irony of the gospel. It is true in the garden that when you plant a seed and it dies, it bears other seeds, and it's also true in the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates this life in this world will keep it. Hate, in the style of biblical writing, we have to understand it in this context, means a contrast to love. So uh, the Apostle Paul, he has this phrase uh, where he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. He doesn't actually literally mean Esau I hated, It's similar to when Jesus actually says, unless you hate your family, you can't be my disciples. Jesus doesn't literally mean hate your family. That doesn't sound quite like Jesus. What he's meaning is not hate, but it means that these things are infinitely second place compared to the first place of Jesus. That's what it means. Preaching the lights out. Yeah, Jesus! It's first place. When it says hate, he's saying these things are infinitely second place compared to the first place of Jesus. When you do that, you get to keep those other things for eternity. So to break it down, we're going to go into the Greek language here a little bit because there's something really neat happening here. He's saying anyone who loves their life, which is a Greek word, psyche, everybody say psyche, will lose it, while anyone who hates their life, psyche, in this world, we'll keep it for eternal life, zoe. There's two different words for life that are being used here. And what's the difference between psyche and zoe, life? Psyche life is the things on the surface. It's the things that are transient. It's the things that are temporal. It's the things that you see with your eyes, but they're actually there's layers of depth behind them. Zoe life is the deep nature of a thing that endures. It's true life. It's full life. It's the, it's the deepness of life. So Jesus is saying the things on the surface of your life need to be second place so that God can redeem them and that you can actually keep them. Psyche is like a zero and Zoe is like a one. Now, I'm about to attempt a math analogy in a sermon. And anytime I talk about math, we're all on dangerous territory, so please use grace. Um, But Psyche is like a zero. Zoe is like a one. So any... Anytime you have zeros and ones, they, they have an interesting relationship with each other. Um, but I think, you know, this makes sense to me. And if it makes sense to me, I think it'll be, uh, make a lot of sense to you. Uh, so it's all about priority of order. And so if a psyche is zero and a zoe is a one, uh, think about it this way. If you, if, if you put a zero before one, it adds nothing, right? Please tell me I'm right. Uh, if you put a zero before one, it adds nothing. The number one without a zero in front of it is the same as the number one with one zero in front of it. It's the same as the number one with two zeros in front of it. It's the same as the number one with a million zeros in front of it, right? Yes. But if you put the zero after the one, something happens. If you put the number zero after the one, it becomes 10. Put two zeros, it becomes 100, 1,000, et cetera, et cetera. You can keep going as many zeros, and every zero you add after the one changes its value. 
So Jesus is saying we put our psyche first, those things first, we are actually adding absolutely nothing to our life. When you put the things on the surface, when you put those unimportant things first, it actually adds nothing to your life. If we put our zoe first, everything else can be redeemed and have tremendous value. Jesus talks about this in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, and we won't get into it this morning, but we talk about it a lot in the starting point. Um, but the irony of the parable in Matthew 25 is the guy who wants to keep everything actually loses everything, and those, those who are willing to give up everything actually get to share in everything. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, uh, noticed this, this principle, and he wasn't the first one to notice it, but, but he, wrote, he wrote about it. And I'm going to quote him at length here because I, I think if we can understand this, it, it's so pivotal. He said, the longer I looked into it, the more I came to suspect that I was perceiving a universal law. The woman who makes a dog the center of her life loses in the end not only her human usefulness and dignity, but even the proper pleasure of dog keeping. The man who makes alcohol his chief good loses not only his job, but his palate and all power of enjoying the earlier and only pleasurable levels of intoxication. It is a glorious thing to feel for a moment or two that the whole meaning of the universe is summed up in one woman, glorious so long as other duties and pleasures keep tearing you away from her. But clear the decks and so arrange your life, if it is sometimes feasible, that you will have nothing to do but contemplate her and what happens." Of course, this law has been discovered before, but it will stand rediscovery. It may be stated as follows. Every preference of a small good to a great or a partial good to a total good involves a loss of the small or partial good for which the sacrifice was made. Now, let me read that one more time because this is pure C.S. Lewis gold here. Every preference of a small good, so we prefer a small good over the great good, or a partial good to a total good, involves the loss of the smaller partial good for which the sacrifice was made. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first. We know this is true. You can't get second things by putting them first. You can get second things only by putting first things first, from which it would follow that the question, what things are first, is of concern not only to the philosophers, but to everyone. So that immediately raises the question, second to what? What is the first thing? The only reply I can offer here is that if we do not know, then the first and only truly practical thing is to set out to finding out. Set about finding out. Does that make sense? You're following along? Jesus is saying, unless you put first things first, you actually lose all the second things that may be important but aren't as important as the first things. Jesus actually said it uh, as well 2,000 years earlier. It wasn't C.S. Lewis' idea. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. In the context of Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about the zeros in our life. He's talking about our comforts, the surface level psyche things, our comforts, our food, our shelter, our worries, all the things that we can spend so much time thinking, worrying pondering, giving energy towards Jesus, saying, if you put the one thing first, all of these things will be added to your life. You won't lose them. They will actually become more valuable. 
In fact, he goes as far as to say in John chapter 12, if you put those second things first, you will lose them. You won't be able to keep them. So, money is not bad, but it's a second thing. If you put it first, it destroys you, but if you put the kingdom of God first, it takes on eternal significance. Think about material possessions, a car, a house. A house, if you have one in front of the zero, it can be a place of hospitality and a kingdom life, but if, if, if that becomes your first place, then you even lose the joy of having a house. It's never big enough, it's never good enough, it's never clean enough to host other people in. I can't have people over because it's too messy. You, you actually lose the enjoyment of the very thing that was primary for you. Think of your professional career. Some of you have experienced putting that second thing first, and you succeeded, 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 all of a sudden to find out that you might be winning at work, but you're losing at home, and maybe that wasn't the most important thing. Relationships, friendships, family. Even if we put our family and our relationships first, we end up losing those relationships because they cannot bear the weight of being the most important thing of your, in your life. They can't. The, the Old Testament actually calls this idolatry. When we make a secondary thing a primary thing, that secondary thing cannot hold the weight of it. And some of you know this. You've, put, you've made your kids your primary thing. You've made your spouse the primary thing only to find out that you were perpetually disappointed, that you've been hurt, and that primary thing was actually a secondary thing and now you've lost the capacity to even enjoy that thing. Think of sex. For some people, that becomes the primary thing they pursue, and then it, loses, it even loses its meaning. It becomes less and less even pleasurable. They can't even get enough of it, or they, they start destroying the relationships they have because they've made a secondary thing a primary thing. Think of your identity. We live, we live in a world that says your identity is the most important thing. Well, your identity, if it doesn't come from the kingdom of God, from what God says, will always, be, will always crumble under the weight of it. You know, why, why are young people experiencing so much anxiety? Uh, I think part of the reason is because we've told them your identity is the primary thing and nobody can tell you what it is except for you and you've got to figure it out and that's a whole lot of weight for a human being to bear. What happens when God becomes the thing we seek first? Now our identity becomes a secondary thing and it takes on meaning and value. So, like I said, the Old Testament refers to this as idolatry, and sometimes we think of idolatry in terms of, you know, things that, you know, statues or icons or, or whatever, but idolatry can be anything. Idolatry can be any secondary thing that we make a primary thing. And that's why the first of the Ten Commandments is that we should have no other gods before God. You know, God could have easily said, you should have no other gods before me because there are no other gods, stupid. He could have said that. <laughs> Duh. But why didn't he say that, even though it's true? He said that because he knows that we have a propensity to take anything and make it into an idol, and that is to our detriment. So Jesus, after this, he says, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. So whoever serves me must follow me. Where I am, my servant also will be. So what is the result of following Jesus? Well, you get to be where he is, duh. It seems so simple, but it's beautiful. 
we actually don't follow Jesus to get second things. We, we actually have to follow Jesus and have him be the first thing. And I've heard, uh, I've heard many preachers kind of promote second things, like if you follow Jesus, all these second things, they can be yours. And it actually is just a twisted way of making the second thing still the primary thing and keeping Jesus as a secondary thing. If we follow Jesus, Jesus gets to be ours. God gets to be with us. God gets to make his home in us. If we follow Jesus, we get to be with him. And as you're with him, you will want more of him. You want more of his presence. You want more of his example, more of his teaching, more of his revelation. This is the reward for those that follow Jesus is that we get to be with him and we get to trust him with all the secondary things knowing that he will give us what we need because we trust him. We have faith in him. We trust him enough to follow him. So I would like to take a minute here and invite you into a little bit of an exercise. Think of the ways in your life where you might be tempted to put your zeros in front of your ones. Maybe these are ways that you've actually failed in the past. You can look back from experience. Maybe you can identify things that are temptations for you, that you're tempted to put them as first things and their second things. And so close your eyes just for a few minutes. Focus on your own life. Don't think about the person that you really wish was listening to this. I want you to think about you. And, and ponder that, as I mentioned, a few things. Have these things become primary, or are they, temp- are they temptations to become primary in your life? Career. Maybe it's where you find your identity, your esteem, where your ego is fed. Money. Pursuit of money, the stability it brings, the privilege it brings, the comfort it brings. Possessions. A car, a home, a cottage, the ability to travel to other places. I just have to visit all these other places and experience these things in these cultures, and if I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself. All good things, but it's not necessarily the reason for living. What if Jesus wanted you to settle down in one place? Would that feel like death to you? What about experiences? Not just travel, but experience extreme sports, adrenaline rushes. I love to do this or that and have these experiences. Or, like I mentioned earlier, identity. Trying to forge an identity out of something that will give you a sense of belonging and purpose and envy in our world. Family. Friends. Kids. Romantic relationships. Fitness. Food. Also a wonderful thing, but it could have a place in your life it shouldn't. Fashion. Could be a number of things. Are there any of these things, as you reflect, and you just listen in a posture of prayer that God is bringing to your consciousness, making you aware of something that is secondary that you've made primary? I think I invite you to keep your eyes closed, but I I do want you to respond in a posture of faith. Uh, In James it says to confess your sins so that you may be healed. And sins is just a way of saying we've missed the mark, and we talked about that a lot in this series. And I would just invite you to, with your eyes closed, just to to raise a hand if, if you think there are secondary things in your life that have somehow creeped in to be primary. Just raise a hand.
Thank you. I'm going to invite you to open your eyes and, and stand with me. And I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us. And I would encourage you as you ponder those second things that have become primary. Um, I left out a part of the James verse that says, confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Um, that we often experience the grace of Jesus through the form of another human being. That we become God's voice, God's hands and feet to one another. Um, and I would encourage you not to, to keep that to yourself, but to, to start to live that out in authentic community. Maybe with a, another person, maybe with your spouse, maybe with a group, maybe with a prayer team member that comes to the front. Uh, it could be anybody. Uh, but what does it look like to actually start to live out this authentic faith? Not one that pretend, not one that pretends it has it all together. We got it all figured out. But one that recognizes, hey, I have a tendency to make secondary things primary things, and I actually want to live in a community that encourages me, that cheers me on, that champions me to make the first thing first. So, would you consider doing that with somebody in your life? I would encourage you to do that. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you uh, for Christmas season and what it is actually about, that you came to make your home among us, Lord, because you were the thing that the whole world was searching for, even though we didn't know it. You are the primary thing. Lord Jesus, your kingdom is the primary thing that we need, even when we know it and when we don't know it. Lord, thank you that you know our hearts. And despite our best intentions, Lord, we have a tendency to make secondary things primary things. And Lord, it's not that you condemn those secondary things. It's just that you know that they actually don't hold value for us unless we put first things first. And so, Jesus, we put you first this morning. We just confess that we have a tendency not to do that. And so we thank you for the forgiveness that you offer every time we turn to you. And Lord, we want you to be first. We want you to be primary. We thank you that no matter our story, no matter our experiences, no matter the decisions we've been made or no matter the decisions that other people have made that have impacted us, Lord, your grace is enough. So Jesus, we say you are first. And we trust you with all those other things. We trust you, we have faith in you, we follow you, and we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. As I reflect on the words spoken this morning, I want to invite us to prayer. As you focus on maybe some of those secondary things in our life that we've actually made first. Maybe we actually have to let those things die so that something else may grow in our life. And as we focus in and we talk about Christmas, I know for many this brings a lot of positive memories and association, but for some it's a time of um, mourning or a time of uh, ruminating over past failures or broken relationships. And you're trying to, uh, to forget those things and to get rid of those things in your life, but even just as a reminder of, uh, of God's redeeming grace. Right? As we put faith in God, he actually puts faith in us to, uh, 
to partner with us in our stories uh, to make an impact and to make a difference. And I know sometimes that involves other people, uh, that that involves prayer, um, that we do have prayer teams at the front of every service, or maybe there's somebody in your small group that you need to open up with because we do life together here at SunWest. So, yeah. And as we even just focus in on this Christmas season and have this, this uh, Advent week of love, my prayer this week is that the love of God, that we may all experience it, and that that love of God actually flows out of us. So let me pray. God, thank you that you become what you love, that you became like us so that we may know you, that we may experience you, that we may actually experience your life and flourish from that life. So God, as I said before, God, we pray that we're able to experience your love this Christmas season and always, and that that love can actually flow out of us. Praise things in your name. Amen. Just a reminder, we have Christmas Eve services 1, 3, and 5, as well as an online uh, service. There's no service on the 26th, but looking forward to seeing you or connecting with you uh, at our Christmas Eve services. Blessings and Merry Christmas. Thank mm-hmm. you.